Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This is a special edition on the Civil Rights Trail, a journey you can make yourself from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. And I'll talk with the people who made history 
and the real turning points of both the civil rights and voting rights movement in America. Stories ranging from Bloody Sunday and the march from Selma to Montgomery and the Montgomery bus boycott and the story of Rosa Parks. I'll speak with Joanne Bland, who'd been arrested 13 times before she was 11, to talk of her struggles back in 1965 and the challenges that still continue today. Then my conversation with Doris Crenshaw about Rosa Parks and to Reverend Cromwell Handy, pastor of the Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church, where so much of the Montgomery protests were planned. Back in Selma, I'll talk with Mayor James Perkins about the real significance of Selma in American history and about the lessons learned and still being applied today. First up, Joanne Bland. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. My next guest is living history of the civil rights movement, and her last name has no bearing at all on her personality. Her name, Joanne Bland. <laughs> I made you laugh. But a Selma native, uh, born and raised here, who is a living witness and a participant in everything to do with the civil rights movement that took place in Alabama in the 60s. Joanne, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, by the time you were, what, 11 years old, you were had been arrested 13 times? That's because we were marching. Um, we were marching for, um, to the courthouse trying to get, even though we were not old enough, the youth were not old enough to register, we would go and pray that um, the Creator would loosen the hearts of those evil men so our parents could vote for us until we could vote for ourselves. And you saw the changes happen. It's, it's, paint the picture for me, if you can, of what life was in, in the 60s when you were growing up, because most people really can't relate to that. Segregation was the norm, and segregation was a, um, an awful period in the United States um, where people were separated by the color of their skin. And it was a lot of things I couldn't do, just everyday things that people take for granted today, like trying on clothes, going into restaurants and sitting down. and Drinking um, out of a water fountain. Drinking out simple things like drink, simply drinking out of a water fountain. Uh, it's amazing you should mention that because when I was a kid, I thought um, Sprite came out of uh, a 7-Up. Some white soda came out of the white fountain because it had to be better than the water I was getting out of the colored fountain. And I heard um, a young man here tell me the same, the exact opposite. He thought chocolate water came out of the, <laughs> the chocolate milk or something came out of the uh, other fountain. A lot of myths. But the bottom line was you were mobilizing. Right. SNCC came to Selma, I think, in 1963, the Student Non-Violating Coordinating Committee. Exactly. And they started to organize area youth. When we found out we could play a part in getting this, so, this change or this freedom, as they called it, um, we were anxious to do so. Now, I, I really didn't understand um, what the connection between voting and what, how it would help me. I didn't understand that at all. I when, And whatever I would ask, no one could explain it to me. I was um, about eight years old, and 
one day my grandmother was standing in front of a drugstore here, Carter's Drugstore. Which is still there. Yeah. Carter's had a lunch counter at that time, and I wanted to sit there. But my grandmother said I couldn't. She said, colored children can't sit at the counter. It's the law. It didn't stop me from wanting to sit at that counter. Every time I passed by Carter's, I'd be peeping in that window trying to see those white kids sitting at that counter, licking those ice cream cones, and I'd wish it was me. But one day we were downtown um, in front of Carter's. My grandmother was talking to one of her friends, and I was doing what I always do, peeping that window. My grandmother noticed, and she leaned over my shoulder, and she pointed through the window toward the counter and said, when we get our freedom, you could do that too. And then it made sense to you. Exactly. I became a freedom fighter that day because I wanted to sit at that counter. And did you sit at that Never. <laughs> Never. Um, there were some young men, some young high school um, students decided to integrate Carter's, and they went and sat at the counter. And instead of um, Dr. Carter calling the city police, he called the sheriff. And the sheriff was volatile. He, was, um, he had a posse and all of this. And they came, and they attacked the boys, and I guess they flunked nonviolence. The guys did, because they fought back, and they tore up the store. And when Dr. Carter put the store back together, he didn't put the counter in. So I never got a chance to sit there. But you did go in. Yeah, I do. Go, well, we could go in then. We just had to go through the side door. But um, we well, could, you went, when you went back in, you went through the front door. Right, right, right. So that suddenly made sense to you. But remember, it's called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. But things did get violent here. Oh, yeah. And it was mostly on the other side. Um, peaceful marches were... Um, Attack, and you know the most famous being March seventh, nineteen sixty-five. That was Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday. Yep. On the bridge. Mm -hmm. Were you there? Yes. Tell me what happened. Well, we gathered on the the playground of um, George Washington Carver Homes, and walked down Broad Street up to the bridge and over it. And I could see as I crested the bridge, there was a line of, po of policemen. They were state troopers lined all the way across all four lanes. And, so they, all, and they all had their billy clubs and they all had their... Oh yeah, they um, were fully armed, but at that time I I just knew that we were not going to Montgomery. We've met resistance before, but um, no violence. And I just knew that I wasn't, and as I descended further, I thought that service roads were filled with policemen too, some sitting in cars, some on cars, some on horses, which further affirmed we were not going to Montgomery that day. I was too far back in the line to hear or see what was happening. That march was led by John Lewis and Hosea Williams. But normal procedure would have been when John and Hosea got to that line of policemen, one of them would ask permission to pass. It would be denied. They would go down on their knees and we would follow suit. One would say a prayer, and then after prayer, we'd come back to where we started from, either plan a new strategy, uh, regroup, and go right back. Or if you dropped your knees, you could be arrested right there. Right. Well, I guess, but that was normal procedure, right? So I'm standing, waiting for the front to go down when suddenly I hear what I thought were gunshots and screams. Um, before we could turn around, it was too late. They came in from both sides, the front and the back, and they were just beating people. Old, young, black, white, male, female, it didn't matter. They were just beating people. People lay everywhere bleeding. 
not moving as if they were dead and you couldn't stop to help them. The gunshots turned out to be the tear gas canisters being shot into the crowd. Then you can't see, you can't breathe, you panic. Oftentimes you run right back to the same people you're running from. And how old were you then? I was 11. And the last thing I remember seeing is this horse and this lady, and I don't know what happened, but I do know I can still hear the sound of her head when it hit that pavement. The next thing I remember, I was on the city side of the bridge on what is now the Selma Interpretive Center in the back of a car. And my sister Linda was in the car and my head was in her lap and Linda was crying. When I became fully awake, I realized what was falling on my face were not my sister's tears. It was her blood. My 14-year-old sister had been beaten on that bridge and had wounds in her head that required 35 stitches. A day you'll never forget. Ever. But that was a turning point. I guess. Right? Because you I think because it was broadcast all over the world. And remember, we were um, sending, the United States was sending African Americans to fight in the Vietnam War to go liberate a country that didn't necessarily want to be liberated. <laughs> but um, they were dying in alarming numbers, African Americans, yet they could come back to the U.S. soil. And, and they couldn't sit at the lunch counter. Couldn't, couldn't even ride at the front of the bus. So. So what did you do next after Bloody Sunday? After Bloody Sunday, that Tuesday, Dr. King came. Dr. King came back and organized us for that Tuesday, and he said there would be another march. And he and Dr. Abernathy led that march. It's now known as Turnaround Tuesday because um, we met the same scene. I don't mind telling you, I tried to go back when I crested that bridge and saw it was the same scene. Nothing had changed, so I tried to go back, but my sisters wouldn't let me. They held my hand and kept talking. I remember one of them saying, come on, they're not going to beat Dr. King. I went, but I was terrified. And what happened? Dr. King asked permission to pass this time. Um, the policeman told him the same thing, but they allowed them to kneel and pray. And we all went down, and after prayer, Dr. King and Dr. Abernathy led us back here to Brown Chapel where he held a mass meeting and told us he had applied for a court order that would give us the legal right to walk if we so wanted to. And did you get it? Yeah. It was signed on March 17th by a judge in Montgomery named Frank Johnson. And on March 21st, we left here one more time, went over that bridge, and those same policemen who beat us up had to protect us all the way from Selma to Montgomery. So I, you, you made it to Montgomery. Right. I walked the first leg and the last leg. My sister with the stitches, Linda, walked every step of the way. Today, of course, more than 50 years later, you can sit down at the lunch counter, you can vote, you can drink out of the water fountain, you can ride in the front of the bus. That doesn't mean the work is over. No, it's not. The struggle continues. We're not where we, we need to be. Um, we're, and yet um, when I was talking to the mayor, he was saying to me that Selma's a little bit of the head of the game because Black Lives Matter was something you've dealt with already. Right. You agree, you agree with that? I don't know if I totally agree with that, but I hate to dispute my mayor. <laughs> um, I think we've done a lot toward leveling the playing field here in Selma because we don't have a lot of other. It's just black and white, right? And the, the majority of the whites here, I find, are just regular people, just like we are. And they realize we are regular people, and we try to work together to make Selma a better place. 
Um, now, there are some that still hold on to that old guard, but the majority of Selma is not like that. So I guess that's what, I'm pretty sure that's what he means, too. So much of, of, of telling the story is the storytelling itself, and that's what you do. Right. I own a company called Journeys for the Soul, and we specialize in educational tours on the voting rights struggle with a great emphasis on Selma because um, I think it's important that especially young people hear the stories from the mouths of the people who made it because uh, this history was not so long ago, but to a young person it seems like a, a, a eon ago or something, you know. So um, when they see me and others who um, tell their stories, tell their stories when, they, when you come to Selma, and it becomes um, real. And they also leave here with the um, charge uh, that now is your time. You know, we've gotten you this far. Use what we did to get us even further. And what I like about um, this now is a rainbow. It's not just um, black people and a few um, justice-loving white people. It's, it's across the board. You know, um, even Selmians believe that we have to work together to get where we need to go. Well, there's a very famous quote that those who cannot remember the past are doomed destined, to repeat it. Destined to do it. And it's so true. So I think social movements are like jigsaw puzzles, that um, everybody is a piece. But if your piece is missing, the picture's not complete, right? So I think it takes all pieces to make the picture complete. And I think my piece in the puzzle is assuring that generations to come know the history of Selma. When you do tell that story to people who visit, what's the one thing that surprises them the most? The one that I, I look so young, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, just yesterday, day before yesterday, I had a group, people from San Diego, and they were adults, elderly adults. And this one lady just could not grasp the fact that this happened, you know, that how could people, she kept saying, how could people do this? How could, uh, and I didn't know how to explain it to her, except to say that none of this is new. None of this, no one's surprised or surprised that the now uh, emphasis on police brutality that has happened since we've been on this, this soil. And we've been crying about it for years and nobody's listened. But now that this modern technology has brought it in right in front of your face, you can't it's ignore instant. it. It's instant. Yeah. You cannot ignore it anymore. See, and you, you want to do like a kid and say, see, I told you. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I told you. Yeah, but I'll raise a question. You can't ignore it, but there's still people who deny it. Right. Right. And, use, and come up with these um, excuses. That is, um, this was justifiable. How could that be justified? How could you shoot somebody in the back running away from you and it be justified? Uh, that's just ridiculous. So I don't understand. We've made great strides, but we have great strides to go. And I think uh, when people come to Selma and see Selma, because some people are surprised that Selma's just not the Mecca, you know, that is not progressed. It still looks like it's back in time. When you come over that bridge, you come, and then they also are surprised that the bridge is so small because it, it plays is. such a huge role in this history. They think it's, it's miles long, but it's, it's not. But it's a symbol. Yes, yes, it's a symbol of freedom all over this world. And people, I get groups all the time from 
of the countries that come in to study this history so they can go back to their country and make change. So they're surprised because they still can't believe that it happened, but you've lived it. Yeah, I know. I know, and I can only tell my story, that um, your story is vastly different than mine. The best part about that, we're not where we were. And when you recognize that how far we've come, you can also see how far we need to go. It's not just to, um, we're here, we're, we're all, let's all get along in the Rodney King voice, but... Um, and by the way, that was 1992. That's already almost 30 years ago. <laughs> right, right. But um, most of my clientele are young people. Oh, and yeah. they need to be educated. Exactly. My thanks to Joanne. In Montgomery, Alabama, about 45 minutes away from Selma, the civil rights struggle came to a head a few years before Bloody Sunday, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a city bus. It was another turning point in American history, and Doris Crenshaw was there when it all happened. Many of you have heard the story of, of Rosa Parks. Uh, that is a Montgomery story. It is now a, an American story. Uh, for those of you who haven't, my next guest knows it better than anybody. Uh, she's an icon of the civil rights movement here in, in Montgomery, someone who knew Rosa Parks very well. Doris Crenshaw, welcome to the show. Thank you. You know... We hear that story, but until you actually come here and walk it, even though it only went two blocks, right? Until you come here and walk it, you don't realize how intense that story was and what it meant not just to this community, but what nobody realized what it was about to mean to the rest of the country. And the world. So tell me about your relationship with, with Rosa Parks, and, and if you can, paint the picture of what happened that day. I was in school that day and went home, and we learned uh, that Miss Parks had been arrested. So on the campus of Alabama State was uh, Professor Joanne Robinson, who made leaflets announcing uh, a mass meeting. That was following all the meetings that we had. But I was given leaflets to pass out that weekend. And My sister, all in the wake of the arrest. All in the wake of the arrest. Because, Announce, mm -hmm. because she had taken that bus ride just two blocks mm -hmm. uh, to the two different theaters that were off of, on opposite sides of the street. They had all let out their their performances about the same time, and the bus got very crowded. Even though she was sitting in a seat that was, I hate to use the word now, colored, mm -hmm. the rule in those days was that if the bus got crowded, the whites didn't have to stand. And the bus driver ordered her to stand, and she didn't. Yes, but that was not the first time that she was arrested. She had been arrested before by this same driver. And so people say that she was, her feet were tired and she was tired of walking. But she was tired of the treatment of what she used to call our people. And she decided that she was not going to do it. But she was not a fragile, scared, afraid woman. In fact, uh, we kind of called her the quiet storm because uh, I traveled with her um, around the state to various NAACP meetings. And I got to be the vice president of the Youth Council NAACP and went to a convention in Birmingham. Now, following that, uh, after the bus boycott started, they banned the NAACP in Alabama, period. Well, let's, so, let's not jump too far ahead. Okay, all right. First, she gets arrested. Right. Then you're doing the mass meetings and organizing the boycott. Okay, yes. And that we, boycott was only supposed to last... One day. What happened? Well, the, um, it was decided that since the one day was successful, that um, we would carry the uh, boycott on until the demands were made. 
And so uh, that took us 381 days to do that. More than a year. More than a year. Uh, now, mind you, at this time, I was 12 years old. So um, a lot of the adult conversations I was not involved in in terms of decision-making. But after decisions were made, we kind of carried out uh, the demands and recruited people to come to the mass meetings. And a lot of those mass meetings mm -hmm. were at the church. Yes, the various churches. What happened was they had mass meetings on the west side of town, which is where Holt Street was and where Lord and I did. And then they had some on the east side of town. But I do not recall um, any conversations about mass meetings at Dexter. But Holt Street Baptist Church, Bethel Baptist Church, Mount Zion, Amy Zion Church were frequent, uh, fr frequently held the mass meetings there. And you, at the ripe old age of 12, right. were out there handing out leaflets. Yeah, we handed out leaflets the weekend before the mass meetings announcing that we're asking people to stay off the buses for one day and to come to a mass meeting at Holt Street Baptist Church. Uh, prior to that, um, we, we had um, youth council NAACP meetings, and we met at Mrs. Park's apartment. And uh, a lot of people say that they were involved and so forth, but if there were 12 meeting members that attended those youth council meetings on Sunday, we would have an overflow crowd. So that's how I got to become the vice president. And your trajectory didn't stop there. In 1977, you were invited to join a policy council at the White House. Yes. Tell me about that. Okay. Um, I was um, involved in several different movements following the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, for the 10-year span uh, in Montgomery, following the boycott, there were the 60s and student movements in the 60s. But between 55 and 60, we were involved in training at the Highlander Folk School, and they emphasized voter registration. Um, that was my involvement for the most part. But my sister was involved in singing. She uh, organized a group called the Montgomery Gospel Trio, and they sang, and we were surrounded in Highlander by the Klan who were burning torches and so forth. And my sister started singing, We Are Not Afraid, and they added that verse to We Should Overcome. So we, we were involved in most of the activities that took place around Montgomery and surrounding for, for that period. Well, until this day. But um, so you asked me a question that I drifted, so... I'll drift give, you back. Okay. The White House. The White House. Okay. So because of that, all that involvement, I got to work for a group called the... I worked for Dorothy Hyde, uh, following my stint with Dr. King at the Open Housing Movement in Chicago. So I got to know a lot of people around the nation and had connections. So I came here... And I ran a uh, campaign for a fellow named Joe Reed. He won, and he took me to a meeting with Jimmy Carter. And the rest, as they say, is history. And the rest is history. I was at the meeting, and I was um, the one that asked the most questions, so he wanted to know who I was. So and they he found, found out. out. <laughs> he found out. And they asked me to arrange a meeting, uh, bring 40 people to a meeting with him. 
and I got a hundred people. So then they really got excited about who I was. And they called and asked me to join the Carter campaign staff, which I did. And mm -hmm. Let's go back, mm -hmm. because here we are more than a half century after her arrest. Mm -hmm. What are the lessons that have been learned? What's the message that you want people to hear? I want people to stand on their convictions, on the courage of their convictions. And I want people not to be so emotional and and just jump right here right now plan your actions and and be thorough in your uh investigations you know one of the things that dr king always talked about the first thing you do is get the information so i fear that a lot of people in organizations today just uh, hot-headed and jump out there and say let's march but um so i think the lesson that we should learn is discipline Encourage. You know, from organizational perspective, the technology today allows you to mobilize a whole lot more people than just handing out leaflets. So you can get everybody out there, but they still need to know why they're there. Right, and what they do after they're there. Exactly. Because it, it, it doesn't end with you showing up in front of uh, Richard's, I mean, uh, Coca-Cola. But you have to have to have a plan for that. And then you have to be able to negotiate with the people that um, you are confronting a boycott. You have to have a conversation. You have to have a conversation. And you've been in that conversation ever since. Yes. My thanks to Doris. Many of the protest meetings were held in Montgomery's Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And who preached there? Martin Luther King. Today it's called the Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church. And Pastor Cromwell Handy preaches from the exact same pulpit that Dr. King did more than 60 years ago. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. For those of you who follow this history, way before the Selma to Montgomery march, there was what was going on in Montgomery. And a lot of it was happening inside the Dexter Avenue Memorial Baptist Church. And joining me now, the pastor of that church, Cromwell Handy. Pastor, you weren't alive when the march happened, but you are, you are part of its legacy. Absolutely. Uh, the uh, first notable uh, event for the modern civil rights movement was the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, Which happened in that, it started in the church. Uh, right, right. The basement of this church, the decision was made to do uh, start that boycott and, of course, to uh, continue with uh, uh, the, an organization called the Montgomery Improvement Association that uh, Dr. King was uh, uh, elected as the president during that particular time. And he was also preaching at this church. Yes, sir. He certainly was. And of from course, the I came. the same pulpit that you preach from. Yes, sir. <laughs> I actually uh, uh, was, was born two years after that, you know. Uh, but again, as I, as, as I often remind people that being one who was raised in Montgomery, uh, you do get to see uh, the vestiges of, of the, the, the system that was in place for uh, segregation and uh, transforming into an integrated environment. Well, you went to a segregated school. Certainly did, uh, up to from the first grade to the sixth grade. And then uh, you saw the transition. 
I certainly did and, and had an opportunity to experience it, but experience it at a young age. Uh, 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 we have a tendency as young people not to know the full picture, uh, but we can only react to the interactions that we have uh, with those who didn't look like us. And so my first experience was with uh, the seventh graders uh, at a predominantly white school uh, after having been in a black school uh, my you know, entire life up to that point. And that was a brave new world for everybody. It sure was. It certainly was. Uh, it was different, and I, and I often share the story uh, of being in the classroom, and I, I share it with you. Uh, the first day uh, we uh, came uh, to that particular uh, school, uh, I didn't have a pen or uh, pencil, and as a teacher was passing around a piece of paper for us to sign it. Uh, 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 the person to my right and to my left, but particularly to my left, had a pen, and he was a white young boy, but you know, we, we, you know, right there. So. So what was interesting, I turned to him and I looked at him and I said, could I borrow your pen or your pencil? He looked at me and he said, sure, and he handed it to me. <laughs> and so that was my first experience in dealing with someone that was not like me, you know, African-American like myself. Now, not to say that after that, not with this particular individual, but after that, there were other other, uh, you know, other signs that, that, that the, the, the desegregation was not as popular as we thought it was as young people, but that was my very first encounter with someone that was white uh, at that early age. Again, we had other, uh, I had other experiences that were not so pleasant. However, uh, uh, that's where you got to see and look back on and say, you know, this is where the transition was taking place when we were younger. We can deal with it a little bit differently. Well, in the, in the age of context and perspective, Yes. You can now tell people this is where we were, mm -hmm. this is where how far we've come, yes. and this is sadly in many cases how far we still have to go. Absolutely, and, and when I look at the current climate, uh, uh, we can see a gradual pro a process, uh, progress actually. Uh, we can see it happening, but, but on the same token in recent years, I would say in the last three, two or three years, you really see what appears to be an overt attempt to return us back to those days where we had desegregation, uh, and it may not, uh, it may be masked as something else or being more patriotic or that kind of thing, but it's very clear to those who are African Americans or, 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 or of um, other descent other than uh, other than Caucasian, it appears to be uh, a small fragment of America uh, that would, likes to see us go back to those days. And so we're still dealing with the things that we did many years ago. Uh, we've come a long way since then, but we clearly have a long way to go. I believe we're at, we at a point now, we're at a crossroads now, that we in America have to make a choice to be united and do all that we can in order to have a more perfect union. Sitting in your church, you were reminded almost immediately that a movement started right here. Yes, I certainly am. And it still continues today. Absolutely. And, and the one thing I want to also emphasize is that, that, that not only did Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church, at the time it was Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, there were other churches, First Baptist, where Ralph Abernathy was the pastor, just right around the corner here. Uh, there were other churches that, that came together. In fact, it was a movement of the church that made the difference in the, in the, in the modern civil rights movement. Because you were already organized. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, okay. and no one knew what Dr. King was gonna be when he was brought to Montgomery, Alabama a year prior to the Montgomery bus boycott. He had been here a year before anything, uh, he did anything you know, publicly uh, or take a stand at that particular point. And don't forget, he was a young man, 25, 26 years old during that particular time. So no one knew when he was brought here where he would end up as we speak of him today. 
and you know, I stand out in front of the church, and I see people drive by in their cars. They get out. They take pictures. They know of it, but do they know it? I would say the good thing is they have a desire to want to learn more about the modern civil rights movement, and the thing that drives them here uh, to, to stand in front of this church was the movement itself. And so we have a good head start with people who want to just be around and be a part of it. Now, I will say this, on any given Sunday, we would have at least 10% of our people who worship with us on Sunday are people from other parts of the world, uh, 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 the other parts of the country. And it's, it's very unique because I'm not speaking to an all African-American uh, congregation. I'm not speaking to an all white congregation. I'm speaking to a very integrated international uh, a congregation on every Sunday. And am I conscious of it? Absolutely. Because the one thing we need is unity, love, and peace. When those congregation folks come up to you after the sermon, the visitors, yes, <laughs> what's the biggest surprise to them? To them, I, I believe that, and oftentimes when they do approach like you said, after the service, they want to either take a picture or something with you, something along those sorts, which came, <laughs> was, was interesting to me as a new pastor when I came in 2013, that they had that kind of interest. And so what it showed me is they wanted to preserve a piece of what they were experiencing here at Dexter, not just the building, but the experience of people and found that our congregation is very, very friendly, loving, and open. And that's the thing that we prided ourselves on. It's also about storytelling. You have to continue the story so people don't, don't forget it. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and part of that is to make sure that we are reminded that we've come a long way again, but we have a long way to go. And if we forget where we've come from, it's difficult to chart a path to the future. You know, you ask a kid where the food comes from today, they tell you the story, you go, not exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Not yes. exactly. Yeah. Same thing that in happen. discussing the entire civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. James Perkins is now the mayor of Selma, and he likes to say his city was way ahead in the Black Lives Matter movement. But that's not to say all the problems have been solved. As he likes to tell visitors, Selma was ground zero more than once, and that started in 1865. My next guest knows a little bit about this town, too. He's the mayor. James Perkins, sir, welcome. Thank you. Invitations are important, and I appreciate the invitation. Oh, listen, I appreciate the invitation, too. <laughs> We're happy to be here. Okay. Uh, you know, most people, and I say this about my fellow Americans, so I'm a little embarrassed, they're geographically ignorant. They don't even know where Selma is on the map. So why don't you help us and give us a sense of place here. Where is it in Alabama? Selma's in the central part of the state. We reside in a region referred to as the Black Belt. Uh, we are 50 miles from the state capital and uh, 90 miles from the largest city in the state, Birmingham. And it's easy. You fly to Montgomery, and about 45 minutes later, you're here. You're in Selma. And, you know, just driving into Selma, I mean, what you're seeing on every street corner, on every street, is history. History lives in Selma, has been said before. It is literally true, uh, and our history goes back uh, uh, 200 years, in fact. And in fact, most people might remember Selma from March 7, 1965, the famous march to Montgomery, and not far from this hotel, literally maybe 400 feet from this hotel, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Absolutely. Uh, that's where most people start their historical tour of Selma. But I encourage people to go back 100 years prior, go back to April of 1865. 
and you'll find a very interesting history there as well. Tell me. Well, uh, April 1865, the last significant battle of the Civil War was fought right here in Selma. The only battle that General Nathan Bedford Forrest lost was right here in Selma. This hotel, the St. James Hotel, was managed by Benjamin Sterling Turner, one of the first African-Americans to be elected to the United States Congress. A lot of histories here in Selma. So the Confederacy lost it here. They lost it right here. So and basically, but what it took that, a while for the flag to come down. Well, it did, and but 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 here but here's but here's the significant thing, that represented a ground zero experience for our community because at the end of that battle, everything was burned down with the exception of this this water avenue where we are sitting now. That means that with that ground zero experience, ushering in literally the rights of people of color in this nation, are uh, the right to vote. Thus. Uh, African-Americans were elected to many positions across the South, including in Congress. And Benjamin Turner, as I mentioned, was one of those individuals. Well, over that hundred year span, we lost a lot of those rights as people of color. Well, guess what? One hundred years later, March of 1965, the second Ground Zero experience was right here. ushering in the rights of people of color to vote right here in Selma. And so we really have a rich history that connects the Civil War to the Civil Rights, and now we are looking at our beyond. Well, you know, some of us had to read books to learn about African-American history. You lived it. Yes, I was a child 12 years of age in 1965, was one of the student protesters participating in the marches. Didn't get a chance to march on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. That morning I cried because my parents wouldn't let me march that day. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, di- I was at Brown Chapel as the marchers returned from the bridge uh, because we had heard what had happened. But, you know, when you say you cried because you couldn't march, I don't think people realize how mobilized you guys were. We were. Uh, students uh, really were many of the leaders in the movement. I was a child follower, if you will. I was not old enough to be a leader. But was a no, follower. you were juvenile delinquent. <laughs> well, actually, actually, that's there's a lot of truth to that, uh, because um, uh, be, my parents really didn't allow me to march that day because we'd heard that there may be some trouble, and so we, uh, so I could not go. They didn't let me go, but we were sitting at the table. My mother, my mother was a, a nurse at the Good Samaritan Hospital. That was the only hospital uh, people of color could actually go to at that time. Uh, but she was on maternity leave. If you ever see a picture of Dr. King holding a baby in his arms surrounded by nuns. That's my baby sister. My mother had just given birth to that child, that girl, and she was born on January 15th, his birthday. And so he went to the hospital to see the child that was actually born on his birthday. Uh, But we were home. Uh, We got the call, what had happened. So my dad actually took my mom to the hospital to treat those who were injured. When she arrived, she went back to work. She went back to work uh, while she was on maternity leave, in fact. But uh, the hospital was fully staffed, and so she went to an infirmary called Burwell Hospital that was across the street from Selma University to treat patients there on the floor. But when they left the house, the defiant, less than teenager, the 12 year old boy, who I'm looking at right now, I left home behind them and uh, ran over to, to, to Brown Chapel and was there as the marchers were returning. And how many people were injured that day? Don't know the number, uh, but it was a lot of them. I, you know, my, remem- my remembrance of that experience was the smell of the tear gas, 
and seeing adults crying, you know. Uh, you and that know, was people, that the first time you smelled tear gas? Well, it was. And, uh, but it was a very traumatic experience for a lot of people. Um, but, um, you know, it, hey, it is what it is. But, you know, given the power of, of the visual medium, given yeah. the power of television, that was the turning point. It was. It was. Uh, Dr. F.D. Reese, the guy who signed the letter, to invite Dr. King and SCLC into Selma. That's the Southern Christian Leadership. Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, he was the president of the Dallas County Voters League. We, there, there were eight leaders in a part of that group. We refer to them as the Courageous Eight. Uh, and Dr. Reese uh, actually received a call from Dr. King uh, saying that there had been a little trouble in Selma. I think Dr. Reese's response was that's an understatement. Uh, but that's when Dr. King made uh, the Selmians aware through Dr. Reese that he was making a call for people to come to Selma. And when you want to think about how it reverberated, <clears throat> I remember watching it. I was a child then too yeah. on our black and white television yeah. and seeing those, those, that film footage, not tape, film footage yeah. of what would happen on the bridge and then realizing they then cut away to Washington yeah. with President Johnson he had he could not ignore what had happened it was it was impossible to ignore again it was a ground zero experience that changed the, the the paradigm it changed the direction the dynamic of this nation uh it, it basically ushered in the Voting Rights Act. Absolutely. Absolutely. It did. Uh, in fact, I think after that, uh, after that experience, much of the language of the Voting Rights Act was dictated by phone from Selma. Yeah. Really? Yeah. And who was the governor back then? Well, a guy named George W. Wallace. I, don't know if you... <laughs> I just had to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. Because he had quite a history. I remember him standing at the... Uh, at the gates of the university with the National Guard, not allowing the black students in. Yeah. And then years later, he sort of turned things around. Well, you know, that's, that was the politics of the South. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a different kind of politic that you experience here. You keep in mind, my first, the first time I ran for mayor was in 1992. Uh, and at that time, I ran against a guy, the Honorable Joe T. Smitherman, who was mayor elected in 1964. He'd been mayor for, ha- he for had, 20 years. Well, well, he was oh defeated. God. He was defeated in 2000. That was the third time I ran for mayor. <laughs> and You just wouldn't uh, give up. I just didn't give up. But uh, on that third time was a charm. We defeated him. But he, uh, Joe Smitherman, was an interesting guy. I mean, um, we had... Uh, significant political differences. At the end of the election, uh, most people really probably can't even understand the fact that we actually became uh, colleagues and friends and, you know, visited him in the hospital and that kind of thing. It was a different kind of relationship that we have when you're dealing with politics down here. The architecture dates back over 100 years, Yes. right? Now, some of the buildings are not occupied. Some of the buildings are maybe even abandoned. But it doesn't stop the history. No. And as you walk down that street, you could probably tell me the story of everybody who used to work in those buildings and everybody who used to work in the mom and pop stores, right? I, I still see the old drugstores here with the old Rexall signs, yes. right? That hasn't changed. Yes. Yeah. A lot of the businesses that exist in the 1960s downtown were owned and operated by Jews. We had a very strong Jewish community. Uh, were they immigrants? Uh, no, they they were residents. They, I mean, I don't know when they got here, I mean, you know, but I do know that they really dominated the business community downtown. 
uh, Bendusky's, Lenienthal's, Boston's. I remember all of them, and they were they were very very influential uh, during during that time. In fact, it was many of those stores where African Americans could actually shop in. Yeah, they let you in. Yeah, yeah, we could shop in many of those stores. Well, remember, I was young enough to remember Goodman, Cheney, and Schwimmer, sure, yeah. the, 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 the civil rights workers who were killed in Mississippi. Yes. Right? Yes, yes. And what happened to the shop owners then? Well, um, things changed. Time changed. Uh, we have a very modest uh, Jewish community, almost non-existent right now. Um, uh, we still, um, uh, and I, I, in fact, I still miss uh, that part of our business community. I think it was very vibrant, and, and it actually uh, was carrying us in a very good direction. Uh, now what we have... Uh, is a re-emerging business community. We, you know, this is really about a renaissance. Uh, it's really about a revitalization of our town and of our community, and it's being done with a new kind of energy. I'm, I'm just passing through, trying to connect the dots so that we don't forget our past as we move into this beyond. Our battalion, the city's battalion, says from civil war to civil rights and beyond. And so as we are now beginning to engage at the beyond level, as we, as we begin to do that, uh, what I'm seeing now are young business owners. And, and, and I tell you, there's not a week that goes by. I've been in office now for seven months. There's not a week that's gone by that a developer or someone has not called and say, hey, listen, we're interested in doing business, doing something in Selma. It's an exciting time. Well, the one thing you have to preserve is the storytelling. You got to you got to do that. And that's one of the conversations that I've been having uh, as we turn over the buildings and turn over the properties to a new generation. Uh, we must not lose control of the story. And are you getting the storytellers in a room to do that oral history? We are working on it. We work with the National Park Service, and they have been engaged a lot in helping us to shape the language for the story, to get the storyboards correct, and to get the sequence right. The, my, my primary concern is to make sure that the authentication and the ownership of the story remains with Selma. Uh, we, we should not, we must not lose that. And of course, part of that story is the 12-year-old juvenile delinquent I'm looking at right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that, I, I'm sure somebody will tell their story when I'm gone. You just did. <laughs> but you just did. It's recorded. What's the one thing to this day, here we are in 2021, yeah. what's the one thing to this day that people don't understand about Selma? I don't think people understand um, the, how do I say this, the... As an example, I guess the easiest way to, to answer this question would be by giving you an example. Let's just talk about the renaming of the bridge. Uh, I can Well, let's talk about the bridge. Let's just well, let's, let's start with the bridge. Edmund Pettus. Yes. Well, well, clearly, I mean, most of the nation and the people when we talk about this, they only consider the name on the bridge, but they miss the contradiction in the story the bridge tells. And, and, and that contradiction is in the fact that it does connect uh, um, the Civil War era to the Civil Rights era. Even though it was constructed in the 40s, it still is connected more to that 
that Confederacy portion of our history. Edmund Pettus explained. Exactly. Uh, you know, a, a former Confederate general. So you, you have this connection, but then you also have the realization that it also represents with its name uh, the transformation of this government, this nation in moving us into uh, uh a sovereign nation with people having the rights uh, as dictated in the Constitution. And so um, it, it, the contradiction is there. The other thing that I think that people really don't understand is the impact a ground zero experience has on the people who live there. See, America, we hadn't had a war fought on our soil since the Civil War, you know, but but it was fought in like in many other places here, too. Uh, and the voting rights movement was fought here. We don't state claim to the civil rights movement. That was a lot of places that did that. But the voting rights movement fought here. This was a ground zero experience. And many of the people who were a part of that movement still live here in Selma. And so you can't understand us unless you understand and accept the reality that we st we are still here. Mr. Mayor, you were talking about the idea that people or some people want to rename the bridge after Congressman John Lewis. Well, here's the point I was about. But he didn't want it named after him. He, he didn't want it named after him because I think he saw the bigger picture. I was in a meeting and we had a cross section of our community in the meeting and we were talking about how do we rebrand our community? What do we do? How do we what what should we look like? But here here, here was the question. The question was asked, who was on the bridge March seventh, nineteen sixty five? And and a few hands went up, mostly African Americans in the room. But a couple of white guys' hands went up. And when that happened, people were looking around and said, You weren't on the bridge. He said, Yes I was. I was just on the other side of the issue. That's Selma. And, and, and unless you get that, unless you understand that, that no, nah, the, 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 the rights were won, but the wounds are still fresh. I submit to you that 9-11, that ground zero experience in New York, it will take at least 100 years for that community to heal. Keep in mind that we had two ground zero experiences in Selma dealing with the same issue within a hundred year span. We're still in our healing from the second. And how is the healing going? I think it's going great. Uh, I feel restorative justice in the air. I feel that we are truly moving in the direction. I'm convinced that Selma is- Is America as divided as it is still to this day? Yeah. In a point, at a point where reconciliation can happen, Pete, Peter, I think you're making. I think that's an excellent question, and here's my answer. I think Selma's about 20 years ahead of the nation because, see, we are tired of the fight. We're, we're no longer interested in the fight. When you see all of this going on across this nation, Selma's been silent. Why? Because we're no longer interested in the fight. We're actually interested in the building, the restoration, the reconciliation, the restorative path. Is what we've chosen. Now, and I think the nation is about 20 years behind us. I'm convinced if there is going to be a location where we can actually begin to have conversations about how to move beyond race and racism, the best place to have it, the Camp David of that discussion needs to be in Selma because we get it. And of course, you were here when a number of former presidents walked across that bridge. You know, at Pathway to the White House, you have to come through Selma. 
<laughs> well, they all walked that bridge. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And then, of course, the final transportation of Congress and Lewis across that bridge. Yeah. His uh, horse-drawn his horse-drawn carriage. You know, um, it was a, a very emotional moment. Um, the first time I was elected in office, there was a parade, a big parade on Broad Street. Congressman Lewis, I didn't have the political insight to send him a formal invitation. I didn't even, you know, I didn't plan or schedule the parade. It was done by supporters. But I looked down the street and who do I see but Congressman Lewis in the parade? And uh, we beckoned for him and I sent down. He came to the balcony at City Hall and watched the parade as it progressed. But on that balcony, there's a picture somewhere of Dr. F.D. Reese and, and Congressman John Lewis on that balcony the day of that parade. And it was one of the most touching moments that I remember in him. We worked together as when I was in office between 2000 and 2008. He did a lot to help Selma then because Selma was at the tip of the spear in his passion. Well, it is such a symbol. Absolutely, absolutely. And he is missed and will truly be missed. And he has to be. He must continue to be a part of our story. Anybody who visits Alabama and wants to walk that civil rights trail, yeah. it is a rite of passage. You got to cross the bridge. You got to do it. You got to do it. Many of us who are here, you know, you can be so steep in the forest, you know, you can't really see the trees. It's kind of where we are. We we actually, you'll be surprised how many times you say, well, we need to get past the bridge. We need to go. Well, we know we don't need to, we don't need to move beyond it. We need to include it. We need to grow with it because it really symbolizes something very special for this nation. And when you walk across the bridge, what does it symbolize for you? I'm a child of the movement. It symbolizes, uh, I mean, it really represents how I got here. I mean, how, how, how is it that James Perkins, a kid who grew up in Selma under Jim Crow law, sitting here having an interview with Peter? It's because of what happened on that bridge. And now, this, now the bridge symbolizes how you cross into the future. Yes, it is our beyond. My thanks to Mayor Perkins, to Pastor Handy, to Doris Crenshaw, and to Joanne Bland. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. 
Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.